on the air and streaming on the web since 1996, this is the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. This is Talking Soundtracks with Jason Jury on the Cinematic Sound Radio Network. Hello again, my name is Jason Drury and welcome once again to Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. Murdoch Mysteries is a Canadian television drama series that premiered on City TV on January the 20th, 2008 and airs on CBC in Canada as well as 120 other countries around the world including Alibi in the UK. The series is based on the characters from the Detective Murdoch novels by Maureen Jennings and stars Yannick Bisson as the fictional William Murdoch, a police detective working in Toronto, Ontario in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. The series also stars Helen Joy, Thomas Craig and Johnny Harris. The show has achieved such a longevity that it is now into its 16th season, with one of the show's assets and ever-presents being the show's music composer, Robert Carley. In December 2022, for Talking Soundtracks, I had the pleasure to talk to Robert Carley via CleanFeed at his studio, in Toronto, Canada, not far away from where Murdoch Mysteries is filmed. During the interview, we talk about the composer's musical background, how he became involved with Murdoch Mysteries, and how his music has developed throughout the 16 years and counting of the series. During the show, we will also be hearing samples of Robert's music from the series. In an interview, which as you will hear, is a fascinating insight into the work of a composer on a long-running television series. Robert Carley, welcome to Talking Soundtracks. Thank you very much for having me. How did your interest in music start? I think my answer is similar to a lot of musicians and composers where we were exposed to music at a young age and there was some either imposition or desire to take music lessons. And in my case, I think I was so terrible at it that I would often make excuses not to go to my piano lessons or I would practice and then you just pretend to fake your way through the lessons. I had a lot of weeks like that early on. And it wasn't until I got to about the sixth or seventh grade that the itinerant music teacher came around with clarinets and I picked up the clarinet. And for me, because having come from piano where you're playing with two hands and you're trying to read two staves, I found that the sight reading and the execution on the clarinet was pretty natural. And so I was experiencing a little bit of success 
on that instrument. And then I quickly migrated to saxophone, which is very similar. And for me, having that early success on those instruments led me to have a little more confidence in high school. And I was exposed to different ensembles and different styles of music, especially with saxophone playing in bands, but then also concert bands and quote unquote classical music, but then also playing in jazz bands and Dixieland ensembles and then funk bands and rock bands. And so being exposed to all those different styles really, I think, just was a catalyst for me to find out more and to play more. And I really enjoyed it. And so it was a journey of discovery for me about new styles of music and then sort of the art of the possible. Like, what can I do with all of this information? And I got interested pretty early on then in just creating arrangements for small groups writing arrangements for larger ensembles and lifting different types of jazz solos. And I, I was just finding myself more and more exposed through high school. And that's kind of what really lit the fire for me. So have you always been a fan of film and TV music? I, I think, I can, again, my story is probably very typical in that I grew up in the 70s in Toronto. And one of the first movies I saw in the theater was Star Wars as a young child. And that had a massive impact on me. Uh, both just in terms of story and imagination and, of course, the characters, but also the music. And hearing the sort of fanfare-ish quality of John Williams' score off the beginning of Star Wars kind of just, to this day, sends chills. And I think I was in love with just film music and, and what music can do to film from that age on. And quickly after that, a lot of the scores, I have to confess, were John Williams scores that really had an impact, like Close Encounters and Indiana Jones soon after. And those scores just sort of lived with me and my friends. My friends were really into the film side. They weren't musicians, but they were. They thought George Lucas and Steven Spielberg that were just the best thing in the world. And we, we just ate it all up. And from then on, as I grew up, obviously, and experienced different types of filmmaking and listened to different types of scores, everything back from, you know, Bernard Herrmann all the way through to, at the time, modern scores and scores like by composers like Thomas Newman always had a really a real deep impact on me. Uh, and to this day, they still do. When did you decide to make composing scores for film and TV music as a career? Well, I guess when I was in high school, I, you know, as everyone does, they're trying to figure out what are they going to do after high school. And I was going to pursue a music degree in composition with, I guess at that point, I probably, I was about 17 years old thinking, you know, I'd love to be a composer for film and television, but I don't know how to do that. And I think I should start by learning how to write music. So, <laughs> or at least, I mean, I guess anyone can write music. It's not like it's a secret bullet there to do that. But, you know, you, you knew that you had to get an education and some some skills and craft around the, the idea of being able to write music. So I went off to the University of Toronto and studied composition and continued to play the saxophone and to perform. And, you, you know, early on in that process, I was like, okay, I, I really would love to do this professionally. And I started to see how I could connect the dots to do that and started working on some student films. And then after graduation, for a few years, I started to really pursue just working as an assistant and trying to figure out how do I put all these pieces together. So, I mean, the, the genesis of this whole journey started when I was in high school, I would think that's kind of when I set my sights on, how do I get to there? It's kind of what I was thinking, you know. For more about education, how did you manage to get your first assignment? Uh, well, I worked as an assistant for a number of years for a composer named John Wellsman and others as well, but Largely, John taught me a lot of just the technical side of, of scoring and, you know, doing things like MIDI transcription and orchestration and part preparation and getting coffee and, uh, <laughs> you know, almost anything under the sun, really, in terms of learning the ropes of the world of TV and film. And I had put together a reel of some of my work and I had found, I, I should mention that I, I, I initially found some success in doing jingles and ads. So... 
a lot different in terms of narrative and storytelling, but similar in that you're working with collaborating with a team of creators and working with images and pictures and seeing how music can respond or enhance those uh, visual images. And so, yeah, like I said, the process is different in some ways, but in other ways, I was, you know, I was really, really early on uh, able to immerse myself in the commercial world. And uh, that was my first professional gig, I guess, when I was about 25 or 26, doing a few ads, which were pretty terrible. Thankfully, you're not credited when you do an advertisement. But, you know, some of them hired me back. But I was able to, from that, pick up, put together a small reel of material. And I think my very first film was for a company based in Toronto that was doing a lot of co-productions with a company in Los Angeles. And they were doing some really decent films, actually. And they, they, you know, they were low budget, but there was good actors, sort of actors who were perhaps in the autumn of their career, names that you would know. People like Roy Scheider was in a couple of the films I did, or Daryl Hannah, or... Michael Bean, he's the lead character from the original Terminator movie. So they were in these films. And so the films were, you know, well acted, uh, pretty good scripts and some good production values, but they weren't blockbusters and they weren't high budget films. And so they were looking for cheaper composers, I suppose you might say, or more inexperienced people like myself to work on them. And I I was able to do a one film. And then from the success of that one film, not that the film was a success, but I guess my score didn't offend too much. And they were able to trust me again with a few more. And so then I started to do a number of, of shows of that production company. And from then, you know, you just, your reputation kind of grows based on your last job. I've always felt that you're only as good as what you did last. And that's kind of why you often hear composers speak about how every time they get a new job, it's like, it feels very almost daunting in a, in a sense, because there's really, even though you may have had success in the past, every job is unique and presents unique challenges. And I've always been fascinated by that to this day, that even the most seasoned composer, when looking at the blank page, is really perplexed, uh, puzzled, often uh, frightened (laughs) by the prospects in front of them. Do you feel those schools helped develop your composing skills? Well, they certainly teach you how to write quickly and how to get across the finish line and serve the needs of a film. Those are the really the skills that you want to learn. I mean, it's, it's almost like when you think about the craft of composing for film, there's two aspects to it. There's obviously the, the execution and writing of music, but there's really the more bigger piece of that is the ability to collaborate, to decipher what the director wants and to fulfill their vision of the story, whatever that might be. And those two skills can grow in tandem. And I think early on, I mean, I was able to understand that, you know, you could spend a lot of time mixing the toms to get a certain sound (laughs) on a drum set, for example. And that's, that could be very important depending on the scene. But as important to that is where those drums are happening and how they're actually being heard by not only the audience, but more importantly, the filmmakers, like how is it that those particular the sound of those particular drums enhances the viewing experience? And so I learned a lot just about how music can change a scene or help a scene or, or hinder a scene. And those skills, you know, I think you continue to hone those skills and you never really, it's a puzzle that never gets solved completely. And that's what makes it exciting is that you're always trying to understand a director and to understand filmmaking, not just understanding music. That's kind of the challenge for me. Now, when was the first time you heard the words Murdoch Mysteries and you first got involved with Murdoch Mysteries? Yeah, that goes way back. Murdoch Mysteries has been a really a long companion alongside my career for a long time. There's, 
there were three movies created, TV movies, movies made for television in, I'm going to say 2002, perhaps. And they were, I think we did one a year. And they were called Murdoch Mysteries. And they were like two-hour movies produced by Shaftesbury Films in Toronto. And I scored them with a small string quartet. And they were they were kind of dark. I mean, they the, truthfully that they were not not a comedy. They were they were more of like brooding, troubled characters in the show. You know, it was the same premise as the series that we now know as the Murdoch Mysteries. It was the same characters. It was the same author, Maureen Jennings. It was based on her novels, and the success of those three movies. It was from that success that they decided hey, we should make this into a series, and that series became the series we know in 2007. For me as a composer, it was quite a dramatic shift because what I had been doing on the movies with string quartets and kind of more sometimes dissonant writing and some darkness wasn't what they were looking for. They were looking for, they had recast the, all the characters in the show, of course. They had built it for television and they made it a little lighter in some ways, a little quirkier. And it was really a, a rebuild and a rethink for me as a composer and at first I was like, hmm, this is interesting. It's it's not what I expected, having done these three movies. I don't know if this is going to really work, but I'll just, I'm along for the ride. I'll try it out. <laughs> and, you know, 16 seasons later, I, I suppose the answer is it worked. So, because people did really catch on and it's become, you know, a fan favorite for a long time. Yes, it has seemed to have worked. You're, you're absolutely right there. I have seen some of the early TV films and they... they Absolutely right, they are dark. They do show them time to time on Alibi, and they are very, as you say, they're very different in tone to the Murdoch Mysteries. But even though some of the episodes of Murdoch are dark in their ways. And... Yeah, there are. you're right. There are there are moments in the series along the 16 seasons where they have gone into you know a darker place. And then there are, uh, the flip side of that is there's some very, very silly episodes as well.
anyone who does not know or does not watch this series, can you explain the premise of Murdoch Mysteries? The Murdoch Mysteries takes place in Toronto, early 1900s, sort of Victorian era Toronto, and it centers around a detective named William Murdoch, who is part scientist, part inventor, and part detective. And, you know, he's consumed by his work and uh, he's surrounded by a cast of wonderful characters. Um, his, I guess originally his sidekick was George Crabtree, one of the police officers. The inspector Brackenreed is his boss. When the series began, the city coroner is a character named Julia Ogden, uh, who in later episodes becomes his wife. And each episode you know, revolves around a crime, typically a murder, and the efforts of William Murdoch to solve the, the case using, at the time, I guess you might call them groundbreaking techniques, things like fingerprints and also devices that he creates and builds to help him solve crimes. You know, everything from ultraviolet rays to detect blood splatter, things that we see now, of course, in, in crimes. But the, the premise of the show is that he is at the cutting edge of detective techniques and creating new and innovative ways to solve murders in the city of Toronto. Now, when did you find out after those original feed TV movies that, that Murdoch Mysteries would become a series? About two or three years after they finished the last film, or maybe not even that long, I shouldn't say that. I guess it was subsequent to finishing the last film. They said, hey, we're going to make it a series. And so off we went. How do you go about scoring Murdoch Mysteries with the variety of episodes you have in a series? Well, I start at the piano typically, and we try to come up with some sort of a theme for that episode. It might be around a character or around the plot. But I get some melodies figured out, then I'll work on on the computer and start to lay things up to picture. And I, I usually start on the piano and build piano sketches and then orchestrate around those. Do have some live instruments on shows. I play clarinet and piano and saxophone and other wind instruments. Those get on the um, on the score often. And then I'll often bring in um, some stringed instruments, violin or solo cello to flush out the scores, often percussion. My son actually is a percussionist and he's, he's getting better and better at playing along to a click track or just giving me different textures on a drum kit or on different hand percussion. So I use those elements and then after I've come up with the sketches and I start to orchestrate, I'll start to incorporate those live elements into the score. You know, it really depends on the episode. Some episodes are very typical in that a crime is committed and then we just have a procedural kind of element to it. But some of them are much more fantastical and we get onto a special journey or there's some, um, there's a current character named James Pendrick and he often has some outlandish scheme or plot and will end up in some somewhat far-fetched universe, but it's really always very fun. And the scores tend to be a little more elaborate or explorative in those kind of episodes. So it depends a little bit on the show. Some Some of the episodes, like for example, we just did a Halloween episode here, and that episode was a little more, I tried to pay homage to the old classic slasher kind of film, a little more over the top kind of treatment and then some of them are very muted and you know the stories revolve around a little more of an intimacy or a more tragic storyline of some sort and those might the scores might be a little more introspective or emotive in some way yes there are different types of episodes in the series like i do love the episodes when george takes center stage in an episode the the episodes that feature the event of james pendwick the spy episodes with Terence Myers, you, the comedy family of the Newsoms is always something entertaining with those. There's, there's a real mix of fun mixed in with some episodes of very serious subject matter. 
Oh yeah, the Newsoms are always now. There, there's a good example of like you know some of them get almost farcical with the Newsoms, and you know it does polarize people. There, it's it, that's part of the appeal of the show is that it does tend to to swing back and forth from being a very dark place to a very very farcical light place to a fantasy place, and so. You know, people will be, like I say, polarized. You come to an episode featuring the Newsoms, and some people love them, and some people really have a, dis- a distaste for them. Like I, like I was saying, my mom and dad still watch the show, and they're not big fans of the Newsoms, and I am. I'm a huge fan of the Newsoms. <laughs> and so when we have a Newsom episode, I always enjoy it a lot, and I say, oh, you got to watch tonight. It's really fun. And then they watch it, and go, oh, it's the Newsoms. I don't like the Newsoms. And then you know, the next episode there'll be nowhere to be found, of course. So that's part of the appeal is that you get these these types of episodes that might draw in a certain type of people and repel another uh, group of the audience, but then subsequent weeks, it'll be the reverse of that. So it, you hope there's something for everyone. And also the episodes we have like Julia Ogden, Frontier Woman, and Murdoch Komorve, Western-type character. Also, as I said before, the, the integration of contemporary subject matter into a early 20th century situation. I think you're right. I mean, they t- they're they not afraid to take on issues uh, like inequality or race or, in, you know, there was a, a long thread around Julia and William's desire to have a child and their inability to do so. And then adoptions that fell through and the heartbreak surrounding that. Those were very serious episodes. And, you know, the, there wasn't a lot of comedy. And they really, I think, you, you know, they resonate with people for on different levels for different reasons. And then in that sort of string of darker or more serious episodes, you will get a lighter episode where a Terrence Myers might come along or a Pendrick. And and completely change the mood of the series for a couple episodes and then maybe revert back. So you don't want to get too dark and too overbearing too often, but you still want to have it there. So it's kind of a nice balance. That's part of the magic of it, I think.
relish working on these variation of episode types during the series. Yeah, I, I, I got to say, Jason, I'm very lucky to be able to to work on this show that's been going on for so long, and I really do get a lot of license as to what I want to do creatively. So when something that's different comes along, I really do relish it. I really find it fascinating. I mean, I'm about to start an episode today, which is in season 16, that I we spotted on Wednesday, and I'm taking a train to Montreal later on today, and going to be there for a few days and then coming back on the train. And this affords me kind of a different way of approaching a show. And normally I just sit down and go for it because it's due Tuesday and it's only Friday. You know, you got to keep moving. But we have a little extra time in our schedule. And I'm going to just take, literally take pencil and paper and just sit in the library or in my hotel room or on, on the train and just come up with ideas and sketches almost in, in a, a more, almost an old fashioned way of approaching scoring with the way that it used to be done. And I'm really looking forward to that because I think it's going to change a little bit the, the sound of the show, hopefully not too dramatically. And I, I don't think it'll be discernible to most audiences, but my approach will be different. And so when I get back to the studio next week, I'll have a lot of material already written and it'll be about populating the score with this material that I've created while I was away. And so I'm to answer your question, I do relish the different types of episodes, but I also try to, to create challenges for myself. So that keeps it fresh and, and interesting. So you might, the example I just gave, or another example might be where I'll confine myself to a certain set of notes. I've done that before where I've taken the name of a character in the show and then and then imposed a set of rules on how I can use the, the letters from that character's name in a sequence of notes. This, of course, would not be discernible to anybody in the audience, <laughs> but it's just more about my approach and trying to keep the approach sort of fresh. Do you have any input from the producers concerning your music? Well, they, of course I work for them, so they have uh, they have final say on everything, <laughs> but I've been doing it for so long and I think there's an amount of trust there that's that's really a luxury for me. The approval process is pretty streamlined. They will be very specific if there's something they want for a certain episode, like we want this to be like I mentioned, this black and white episode, this 250th sort of film noir episode. And so they were very specific, like we want a film noir score. But that was about all the direction I got. It's like they, they're not saying put a triangle here or a drum roll there. So I have been able to, I guess, inspire confidence in the producers. So they kind of fortunately leave me alone most of the time. Now, as you know, you worked on the series Murdoch Mysteries now for 16 years. How have you seen your music develop throughout the series. I say that because I remember watching some of the early episodes, your score seemed to be a more percussion-based than your present musical soundscape. Yeah, I think you're right. We've, I mean, the score evolves. When we started off, I was really into um, trying to create what I'll just, for lack of a better word, call this sort of steampunk vibe with a lot of metal instruments. And I was using ring modulators and I was hitting a lot of percussion and trying to create energy in the score that way. And I think that was partially because we had come out of the films, as you had discussed earlier, and there was a, a conscious effort to deviate from the sound of those films, which were really much, you know, like I said, string quartets and and kind of orchestral sounding music. And there was a desire to not do that. And we did that, I think, effectively. But then as we got into season two and some of the darker plots, and I'm thinking of something like Hangman was a good example of a really great, one of my favorite episodes in season two, and I was using more of those that orchestral palette. And I remember there was a, a bass clarinet line that I composed. And I felt like we were going into sort of more traditional dramatic scoring with the strings and with, you know, the winds. And it was working. And so as a result, you know, you evolve and you start to do that. And I got away from maybe some of those more percussive elements early on. And then subsequently, you again evolve and you might get away from writing those kinds of lush string kind of things and 
start using uh, a smaller ensemble. I, I recall in season seven or eight, we did um, some episodes with just a, a piano trio, so a piano and cello and violin, which created a smaller, more intimate kind of sound for a few episodes. And then we've done episodes where, you know, it might be, have a more of a vaudeville uh, kind of a, a backdrop. So I'll be using a trombone, trumpet, and maybe even a banjo, you know, just different kinds of sounds in the score to create a sonic environment that is hopefully sympathetic to the picture, but also curious and evolving. I do try to to keep the scores fresh. With 16 seasons behind you, you could easily just continue to just to use old material, but I, I don't approach it that way. And I like to, to try to create either new themes for the new episodes or sort of a new palette or new uh, new sounds. the variations of the songs have you used throughout the series? Well, I've done some recording with a, like a string orchestra of like 40 players. And, you know, I don't have the luxury of ever using like an 80-piece orchestra at the same time, but I have been able to piece things together. So I'll, I'll do a brass quintet. It, there was an episode not too long ago where we did two sessions. We did a string session in the morning and the brass and wind section in the afternoon. Effectively, you're getting an orchestra of about 45 players, but you're splitting it into over two sessions. That would be on the extreme side because those things do cost a lot of money to have that many players. So in a perfect world, we'd be recording lots and lots of stuff live, but that's just not how a lot of television, it, it isn't made that way. It's a, lux a rare luxury to have acoustic instruments every week. We do a thing called layer the thing where you can do a sweetening. So I could record strings that are fake and then overdub a real string or a real cello or a couple of real strings. And that creates the expression and some of the quality of a real live performance. It's not as convincing as having the real thing with the entire orchestra, but it's it, it's an effective way to bring some life to an otherwise kind of uh, two-dimensional score or one-dimensional score. <laughs> Never really done anything with choir. Now that you mentioned it, I'm trying to think what's the most epic thing you could do is like have a choir come in 
I did a little tiny bit of choir for like three bars, which you may hear if you're really listening for in an episode that's forthcoming in season 16. And it's a very special episode. It's the 250th anniversary episode. It's shot in black and white, and it's it's a noir episode. They've used updated, quote-unquote, updated costumes, design, small little things that they've tweaked, like there's more traffic in the scenes because they're trying to emulate more of a, a later style, something more from the 40s or 50s. The hairstyles are different. The costumes are different. Makeup is different. You know, the type of, of lipstick colors, or I shouldn't say colors, it's all in black and white, but you can just tell the way it's applied looks much more modern than what you'd see in Victoria era where they're not wearing lipstick, for example. Have you ever visited the set during filming it? Have you appeared in a series as a cameo? Yeah, I I've, yeah, I love going to the set. They have a wonderful set that, that they've built that has many of the locations that you're familiar with on the show. A lot of it's done on the lot, but Duke had asked from time to time to be in an episode and I've made my best effort to be there. So I was, I've been a piano player in a, in a burlesque bar but most recently, I mean, you just finished season 15 there in the UK, and that season ends with a cliffhanger of a wedding of George Crabtree and Effie Newsom. And the piano player at the church is myself. I'm playing the piano, and I'm barely in the shot. I'm just a little bit. I was really there partly just to celebrate the end of the season. It was the last day of shooting, and they said, come and play the, be the piano player. And so it was partly just bring Carly out of his house, but also I was there just to play the wedding march a few times as they came down the aisle, just to create mood and pacing and things. It was almost like instead of using playback, they just had me play it on the grand piano that was in the church. So I'm sitting at the grand piano. You can sort of see me. I think over my shoulder, you can see some shots are done that way. So I like, I don't like to be on camera much. I don't like to, uh, for many reasons. One, I'm uncomfortable. I don't think I'm a very good actor. And the bigger reason too, it's just, it's, it takes a lot of time. I mean, I, I'm sure you've been on a, a film set. It's everything moves. Things move tremendously slow or tremendously slowly. There's a lot of considerations with setups of cameras and lights and getting everyone on their marks. And so it, it is a slow process. So it can be a whole day just to get a couple of minutes of a scene. It, it, you have to really carve out your time. And luckily, the shows that I work on keep me very busy. It's not just Murdoch that I do, obviously. So there's always a pretty full schedule. And to take a day off is sometimes a luxury. And if I have a day off, I may not go to set. <laughs>
How long does it take to compose a series of Murdoch Mysteries? It depends on the season. Sometimes We started off doing, I think, 12 or 13 episodes a season, and now we're at 24. 24 episodes season takes about 27 or 28, maybe even 30 weeks for them to shoot. And then post-production, which is where we work in the film aspect, is about the same. So we're just lag behind their production schedule by about four to six weeks. So let's say they start shooting in May, but they will finish shooting in February or maybe January to get 24 episodes in. More than half a year, for sure. Thirty, Let's say 30 weeks. So they'll shoot from May till February. And then for me, I'll come in in, let's say, July, and I'll go right to March or end of March even, maybe beginning of April, will be our work window. So that's about how long I am working on the show currently with the 24-episode seasons that we've been doing the last few years. On the credits, I see that composer Christian Berge assists you in your scores. What is his role What is Christian's role in your team? Yeah, well, Christian has been with me a long time, and I'm reluctant to use the word assistant, really, to describe his role now. In fact, he's no longer an assistant, really. He's a collaborator and partner. So he used to just do assistant-type work, like the kind of work I was describing earlier, what I started doing, where you're doing things like cue sheets and timings and prepping and backups and archives and drives and mixes and all those types of things. And now he really is a collaborator, and not so much this season because he's been busy on some other shows, but... In past seasons, he's um, he's credited as additional music by, and I've been giving him more and more cues to write. There might be four or five cues in an episode that are from Christian that he gets to write. And I mean, like I said, this year it's not as much, but I've been doing more of the score. In fact, the next one, I think I'm going to do 100% of the score and not, he won't participate at all but because he's off on another project. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's been a nice sort of evolution for him and for me to work with a team. You know, like we have a small team here and it's uh, it's good that everyone can get involved.
how much do you feel that your work on Murdoch Mysteries has developed your career? Well, I mean, just being able to write a sh TV show every week is really good for a lot of different skills. I mean, just organization and trying to churn out and meet the deadlines, mixing. And yeah, I think that the best way to learn to do something, I, I suppose, is by doing it and by doing it in a ritualistic way. And so I think I can't really speak quantitatively about how much the show has changed my writing style, but it, there's no doubt to my mind that I've it's shaped who I am as a composer and how I work. It's become such a big part of my life for the last, I'm going to say almost 20 years, really, because when you tag on the movies, it's been around for, I think, I'm going to say 2002 was the first movie, so that's that's 20 years right there. You work on other series as well as Murdoch Mysteries. How do you schedule your year to work on other series as well as Murdoch Mysteries? Well, I, I think it, <laughs> I think... I think it gets scheduled for you. I mean, you you sometimes take on a show and not realizing where it's going to land in the schedule and they get pushed or something will move around and something attracts you or you have time to do it. You sign up for it. And then, you know, you sort of, what do they say, shoot and ask questions later. You can find yourself in a predicament where you might be working on three shows at once inadvertently because you didn't plan on whatever show that you had signed up for back in March to be delayed or suddenly it's on top of another show. So it's gotten pretty good around here with me and my small team at being able to navigate some pretty tight schedules. I just finished a series where we were doing two episodes. They were they were only half hours and there wasn't a lot of music, but I remember we mixed it. Two episodes in one week on two occasions. There was a little bit of time between, but it just became blurry of activity and just getting notes back and forth to producers. It became a logistical kind of nightmare. But you know what? I mean, we're not saving babies here. We're we're just making TV music. So the risks are low and uh, we just keep fighting away and see what happens. Now, you recently worked on a live concert in November with the Kitchener Waterloo Symphony Orchestra playing music live to picture of a score from Murdoch Mysteries. How did it feel hearing your music played to a live audience? Well, it's exhilarating because, you know, first of all, you're getting the sonic quality of an orchestra of that size and quality playing the music to picture was delightful. But then also hearing the re audience reaction, you hearing the gasps uh, during the show or the laughter um, or just the applause at the end. I mean, all of those things, you don't get them on television. And as te television composers, we're not exposed to the audience's reaction. I mean, I suppose we can go on Twitter or Facebook and we can read the fan boards. But when we hear people through emails, occasionally they'll say, oh, I love this episode. I love this music. It's quite gratifying. But when you see it en masse, in an instant with 2,000 people in a packed house enjoying the show, it's very, very gratifying and rewarding. Yeah, I mean, I'm very fortunate to have that experience, and we're going to be doing that again shortly. Um, one of the ideas that Christina Jennings, the executive producer and the CEO of the company that produces Murdoch Mysteries, Shaftesbury, one of her ideas is to create some of these, these traveling experiences, whether it be escape rooms or museum installations or concert music. The idea is that, you know, these things can touch different communities in different ways and not on the television screen, but in the concert hall, for example. And the goal is to hopefully get across to the UK with this touring orchestral show. It really depends on the appetite and whether or not we can find the right partners in the UK. But if a fall goes according to plan, maybe I'll be over there in a couple of years with an orchestra working on the show.
you've also worked on movies with directors Ken Finkelman and Jules A. Romero in the past. Would you like to work on more features in the future if your schedule allows? Oh, I think the answer is yes, of course. I love working on different types of projects all the time. And the nice thing about feature films is that there's a little more of a gestation period for writing the score and creating it. I do a lot of documentary films, and documentary films are the same way. I mean, there's it takes a director a very long time relative to television to create and to research and to shoot uh, a documentary. And then that's also reflected in the way that the score is created. We have a lot more time to experiment and to try different things out. So I really love that that process. The features are in... Canada, they're, they're often independent features, and so they're, the schedules are, are very open and loose. They can get in the way of the television uh, schedules, though, so it's, they're not something that I'm always actively pursuing, because I do have a very busy schedule writing for TV, which I, I, like, I try to honor that. However, I love doing the feature-length story, and I just, it's, it's just whether or not the opportunity arises, I guess, is what it really boils down to, and the timing. Who are your musical influences, and which fellow TV composers do you most admire? Well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, there, I'm so influenced by so much, so many different types of music. I, I mean, I could get into all kinds of styles of music that I really enjoy and listen to, experimental music and various things. But I think given the, the nature of our conversation around film music, I think I'm mostly influenced by, you know, orchestral music is where I kind of grew up. And I was very fortunate as a young composer to also be a performer and sit in orchestras as a performer as I mentioned, I play the saxophone. And so I found myself in my early 20s sitting in you know, the pit orchestra for the National Ballet of Canada, for example, or sitting in the Toronto Symphony playing things like saxophone solos that are a part of things like Pictures at an Exhibition by Mazursky or Rachmaninoff Symphonic Dances. They have saxophone solos, but that's it. They're just little moments in the piece. And so what you end up finding yourself is just sitting in, a, in a, an orchestra surrounded by just unbelievably gorgeous playing and you have a lot of time to sit and study orchestration. And I think it really informed me as an orchestrator listening to some wonderful composers. Some of my favorite composers are people like Prokofiev and Shostakovich. And they also wrote for saxophone. So I found myself being able to be exposed to those um, orchestrations in a very intimate way. And you know, I think that's been a huge influence on my work and my writing and my approach to writing. And then in the film side, there's a, a real range of film composers that I like. I mentioned earlier John Williams. I think everyone has him on their list. And then I do like composers that have a very unique sound. I've always been a fan of Danny Elfman's music or Thomas Newman's music. These are kind of the older guys, you know, John Debney or um, John Powell. These are the older guard of the Hollywood scene now. But then there are some younger, newer composers that I... Uh, like Nicholas Bertel and various who are he's rooted in a classical tradition and I really think he's doing some wonderful music with the sort of same palette as a lot of or a lot of other composers but he's writing a very original kind of style of music and I really like what he's doing I've always been a big fan of Michael Dana my my countryman from Canada uh you know academy award winning composer who's just fantastic and so you know there's a real range and I just love listening to scores and there's always something new coming out. And I just can't wait to hear, uh, for example, the new series on Amazon just dropped yesterday called Three Pines. The composer team is is called Toy Drum. Yeah, that's a, it's a name. It's a collective name. I think there's two composers behind that uh, operation. And, you know, it's an interesting idea, the idea of collaboration. I mean, I've been doing that more and more with Christian Berge, who we mentioned before. We've worked on a couple of, of movies as co-composers and a couple of series. And I've done that with Peter Chapman on Winona Earp. And it's becoming more and more common. So, 
uh, I think there's something to be said for this style of approach to composing where you're not just one single voice, but there's maybe a team of players creating the score. Road Up Mysteries is now one of the 16 seasons with over 250 episodes. Why do you feel Road Up Mysteries has managed to last so long as a series? Well, I think I think we've we've sort of touched on so many of the reasons. One of them is that it's got something for everyone. It's got a wide appeal because the episodes can really range. They can really swing from dark to light to comedy. That always creates, I think, interest in people. I think it also the characters are um you're really drawn to them i mean you expressed that earlier jason that you just love the characters and uh, i think that's very true that they're they're always you know fun to watch i think the the puzzle aspect the mystery aspect everyone loves a good mystery and so that's always exciting and the fact is you you don't have to watch all 250 to follow along i mean there are a couple that are you know serial in nature where you need to sort of keep in progression but most of the time you can just drop in and watch an episode and, you know, if there's a character you're not familiar with, it'll be explained rather quickly who that person is. And more or less, you know, you can you can be entertained and it'll be wrapped up within the hour and you don't have to feel like, oh, I should really not watch the next one, which is often television shows are, are created that way because they want to hook you in. They want you to binge watch 10 episodes of something. Murdoch isn't like that. You can sit down and watch 10 if you want, but they're not there. Occasionally there's, a you know, a to be continued or or something where you need to watch the next one right away. But most of the time, you just it's it's a light hour distraction that takes us away from our busy lives and creates a world, a Victorian era world. It's it's you know far away in many ways, and for you, it's far away geographically, but it's also far away for us in time. It's just a different time, where it's a simpler time in some ways. I sh- it sounds a bit cliche, but the escape aspect of it, I think, is really something we all love. And, and that's what I like about the show, too, is I just I get into a, an episode and I'm gone for, for 45 minutes. And finally, how do you see your career developing in the future? More Murdoch Mysteries for a number of years yet, you hope? And what else? Well, I, I don't know. That's a million-dollar question is what's the future hold? I mean, I don't know uh, how long the show will maintain its audience and its uh, popularity and whether or not they'll keep making them, but I'll keep doing them as long as they'll have me. I really like doing the show. And what's the future? I, I, I've been doing this a long time, Jason. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe I'm in the autumn of my career now and I'll be uh, <laughs> I'll be uh, semi-retired or I'll continue to just... I, I mean, I love writing music and I'll always hopefully find ways to challenge myself and to create new experiences and try to discovering what what's next. And, and I don't know the answer to the question precisely, but I could know it vaguely in general terms. It's like, I'll just say it's it's discovery. That's what's around the corner for me. Robert Carley, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today on Talking Soundtracks. Thank you, Jason, for having me. I do hope you have enjoyed our interview with our guest today, composer Robert Carley. Before I go on, I must say that the theme for Talking Soundtracks was composed by David Cassina. I leave you, I think appropriately, the entire music to Murdoch Mysteries composed by Robert Carley. My thanks again for Robert for joining us on this edition of Talking Soundtracks on the Cinematic Sound Radio podcast. And until we meet again, for me, Jason Drury, is take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to the Cinematic Sound Radio Podcast. I want to thank Tim Burton for providing his voice for all the bumpers you hear throughout the program, and to David Casina for providing Cinematic Sound Radio's theme music. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at cinematicsound at yahoo.com. You can find us on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And wherever you're listening to us today, please take a moment right now to leave us a rating and a review of the podcast. You can get a Cinematic Sound Radio t-shirt at our Tee Public store. You can join our Patreon at patreon.com slash cinematic sound radio. And don't forget to check us out on the web at cinematicsound.net.